Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I have got my friend Jeff Verdorn in studio, and we are going to continue our series on who is this Jesus. And according to my math, which is horrible, I think this is uh, episode number 10, but I don't know for sure. But we are going to look at the teachings of Jesus today. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hi, Bill. Good afternoon. Does that number 10 sound about I right? I think it's that is right. Yeah, so I got lucky. Ten out of, so we still that. don't know how many we're actually going to do here. Yeah, so. we don't. So no. we got a lot to cover still. And we're going to look at some of the teachings of Jesus and some of the parables today. So I'm looking forward to that. But maybe before we get to that, let's uh, do a little quick review of what we've covered in the last couple sessions. Well, yeah, since this is uh, session 10 out of this long study called Who Is This Jesus? You know, we've been looking at everything about Jesus from beginning to end, I like to say actually before the beginning and bef- and after the end, because of course he is the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so Jesus is eternal with God as God and eternal with God into the future. So uh, we looked at a lot of Jesus in every, virtually every book of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, even looked at some of the prophecies for Jesus's first coming. Uh, We will get to some of his prophecies for his second coming, but we started looking uh, the last couple times at Jesus's life and his incarnation when he came to earth as a man. Um, He was never ceased being God, but he came uh, as a man to men. Uh, He was made like his brothers in every way, but was without sin, and he walked the earth, and he taught for his earthly ministry, which was about three and a half years, he taught many things, including a whole bunch of parables. So last time we started talking, and I mentioned one of the parables, which was the parable of the valuable pearl. That was actually the first one we started looking at. And just to review, because I find this so interesting, we often hear uh, it taught about the parable of the valuable pearl that, it, and very briefly, it says a man goes and sells all he has in order to buy this pearl that uh, is a fine pearl that's very valuable. And it's commonly taught that we, as believers or as people, need to give up everything we have in order to gain this fine pearl, which is often um, um, symbolic or is taught to be symbolic of the kingdom of heaven. So, but what does that teach? That's actually teaching that we can somehow buy into or buy the kingdom of heaven. It's like, I've always, always had an issue with that. And when I first did this class on the parables and was studying this, uh, I read a little comment from somebody and it caused me to turn this parable on its head. And it's like, wait a minute, that just doesn't sound right. What if the man, however, is not us, but is Jesus? And Jesus is the one who sells all his possessions, or we should say he gives up everything and buys this fine pearl. Well, then what would be the fine pearl? 
gospel, lo and behold, we go to Revelation chapter 5, where it says that Jesus, with his blood, purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is what redemption, by the way, is all about, that Mm -hmm. Christ is the one who paid for the sins of the world, who purchased men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so I think that when this parable makes a lot more sense when you kind of turn it on the head, its head and makes Jesus the man who purchased men for God. Now remember, he purchases men, he died for the sins of the world, but everyone still needs to believe in order to be saved. So the redemption has been procured for everybody in the world, but you still need to believe to procure that redemption, to receive that forgiveness, to receive that salvation from God. Um, so that's where we started, but we only got had time last time for one parable, and uh, and we covered that. So today, I thought what we'd do is talk a little bit about the principles for understanding parables, and then jump into a whole bunch of more parables and trying to understand them. That sounds like a great idea. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We are continuing our series on who is this Jesus, looking at the teachings of Jesus today and the, and the parables. So how do we understand a parable, Jeff? Well, I think there's a few principles that we, before we start and really look at a bunch of these, understand one that a parable is symbolic language. It's actually a metaphor. Uh, more precisely, it's an extended metaphor. It's a, a metaphor that's in the form typically of a story. So a simple metaphor would be like Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Well, he's not actually light. He's using that as a metaphor. It's symbol. It's symbolic. Or when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So a parable is just a metaphor that is extended in a story form. So we actually use parables in culture. Uh, We've all been taught parables uh, most of our lives. So you've probably heard the story of the tortoise and the hare or the boy who cried wolf, or the emperor's new clothes, or any of these stories. These are parables. They're stories that are trying to communicate a simple truth, a simple message in the form of a story. So the tortoise and the hare is the the truth is slow and steady will win the race, or the boy who cried wolf is a warning about false alarms, or the emperor's new clothes is a a story that says you shouldn't be afraid to, to speak truth even to those in power. Biblical parables are exactly the same. Jesus uses these stories to convey a spiritual truth. So I remember reading one commentator who said that they are basically earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And so there's one simple spiritual or heavenly truth that Jesus is conveying in the form of a story. Jeff, can we have some snappy dialogue on something? Sure. Yeah. Well, when you said... Uh, I wasn't uh, being snappy. No, no, you were being very snappy. Oh, okay, I'm, okay. I'm kind of trying to be... Just check it. I'm trying to add snap to gotcha. the conversation. Okay. Well, the snap metaphor... Snap away. I'm, I'm a snapper. <laughs> uh, the metaphor that I am the light of the world, and you said, well, God is not actually light. But I, I think, isn't isn't he light as described in 1 John 1, 5, where it says, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness. Yeah, I was thinking of physical light, not physical or non-physical. Actually, there's a, I'm not a physicist, so I'm going to get way over my head really quick. A particle that actually travels with light in some way, and it's a wave, and it's a non-physical 
I, I never mind. Forget that. But obviously, <laughs> this is the snappy stuff. This I is like. the snappy part. But God is not is light. But he is. He's described as light. And in some ways, uh, I've read some things where light is actually divided into three uh, aspects or spectrums of light: the visible light, the ultraviolet, and the infrared. And you look at those three different areas of light, and you have this three persons, this triune nature of God, and there are parallels between those three segments of light and actually the three segments of God. So Interesting. you're right. You're, he's probably actually more light than we probably understand or know. Uh, so maybe I should use other metaphors like I am the gate to mm-hmm. my sheep or I am the true vine or, you know, some of those other ones rather than the light one. You're All right. right. And that concludes the snappy banter. That was snappy. Now let's get back. All right. So let's look at some principles of looking at parables. And I think these are really important because I think the church tends not to understand parables in their context. So principle number one is to understand the context of the parables. How would a first century Jewish listener understand the story that is being told? We have to remember whenever we studied the the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that these are stories of Jesus who came as a Jew, lived amongst the Jews who were under the law, who taught to them under the law and died under the law. The church is not existent when Jesus is preaching his parables. The church is not formed until Acts chapter 1 and the Holy Spirit comes after the resurrection. So that is first and foremost, which leads to the second principle— and that is Israel. Remember, Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel. He came under the law, died under the law, and all the parables need to be understood in that context. Third point, what is the main point of each of the parables? We need to be careful not to carry the meaning of a parable too far or to combine imagery from elsewhere in the Scripture from this parable. And let me give you a couple examples to make this clear. For example, yeast is used in a couple of the parables. So Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the yeast, and it's being worked through the whole batch of dough. Well, elsewhere in Scripture, yeast is a symbol for the old, the bad, the law that needs to be put away, put aside, cleaned out, and not to bake with the old yeast, but with the new. And so in that sense, yeast is bad. But in the parable of the yeast in Matthew 13, it's actually good. The yeast here is symbolic of the kingdom of God, which is going to one day spread through the whole batch of dough, fill the whole earth, and therefore it's good. So you got to be careful that we don't mix our metaphors, as Mm -hmm. it were. In some cases, yeast is good. In some cases, yeast is bad. So if you recall, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of that old yeast. So in that sense, I think he's talking about the old way, the old covenant, the law. Get rid of that. But when Jesus in Matthew 13 says that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough, he's talking about the kingdom spreading, and that's good. So we need to be careful, number four, of also of not extending a metaphor too far. Um, be careful that we look for the primary meaning of the story. I hear sometimes a parable, people are making much of the maybe some of the small details 
that I, I think they're extending the story or the metaphor a little too far. Look for the big point. What's the big main teaching, spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to convey? And then number five, I kind of already mentioned this about mixing our metaphors. Don't borrow meaning from one parable or teaching and apply it to the parable that you happen to be studying. So another example is for, uh, for us is seeds. If you recall the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. And that seed goes into people's hearts. So the seed is the word of God. But in the parable of the mustard seed, the seed is the kingdom of heaven. The seed is planted and it fills the whole garden. And that again is the kingdom of God growing and filling the whole earth, right? So a little different meaning there to the seed. In the parable of the weeds, we actually have good seeds and we have bad seeds. The bad seeds are sown by the evil one, by the devil. And so those aren't good. That's not the word of God. And uh, and then Jesus obviously says, if you recall, unless you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and if you have just a little bit of faith, um, Jesus says that's a good thing, so as small as a mustard seed. And, uh, and so that seed in that teaching is simply faith. All right, that was some powerful and really clear help when it comes to looking at uh, mixing metaphors. And I think we can all take away something pretty important from this, that we don't want to mix them. <laughs> and Jeff, you made a great point of doing that. I do need to take a break and we'll come back. Let's uh, talk about setting doctrine by parable. That's not something else you should do. We'll yep. discuss that when we return. Jeff Verdorn is my guest, and this is the series called Who Is This Jesus? We'll be right back. Glad to be back with my friend Jeff Verdorn as we are studying our series called Who Is This Jesus? And today we're looking at parables and making sure we don't mix our metaphors when we read parables. And I think it's also, Jeff, pretty important not to set doctrine by parables, is it? Yeah, so that's the last principle. Principle number six is is we we have to be very careful of setting doctrine just using a parable. Um Remember, we as New Testament believers have the rest of the New Testament, and oftentimes parables can be uh, fuzzy, can be clouded. The meaning uh, can be not quite clear. I mean, parables are some of the hardest teachings in all of uh, the New Testament. We, however, have a whole bunch of much more clear New Testament doctrine from the book of Romans and Corinthians and Philippians and so on. And so I like to point out to folks that we should set our doctrine uh, based on clear New Testament teaching and then try to understand parables within those doctrines and not set our doctrines from them. So, mm-hmm. um, for example, I think one of the ones that is commonly, commonly I've heard from preachers over the, over the years is the parable of the prodigal son, and they have used that to justify this idea that you can be saved, you know, because the son is... Uh, in the household, he's part of the father's house, and they assume that the 
prodigal son is saved, he then goes away and uh, forfeits his or takes his inheritance, goes and wallows with the pigs and so on, and then comes back and the parable says he's made alive again. And I've heard some use that to justify an idea or doctrine that you can lose your salvation and gain it again. Well, I believe the New Testament clearly teaches that once you're saved, you have assurance of salvation and you cannot ever lose your salvation. So taking that doctrine to that parable leads you to a different conclusion, and that is that the prodigal son, I believe, is being saved the first time. He's not saved before he wanders off. And so we'll, we'll discuss that at one point in time in, in, in the next couple of weeks. All right, so why does Jesus speak in parables? Well, you know, this is, it's fascinating to me because actually his disciples asked him the same question. If we go to Matthew 13, it says, then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And so this was his answer. And let's read this and then talk about it for a second. What are we reading? Um, so Matthew 13, yeah, do you want to read Matthew 13, verse 11 and 12 and 13? Uh, I'd be more than happy to do that, uh, but I have to find it first. <laughs> Matthew, Matthew 13, 11 through 13. All right, Matthew 11. I'm sorry, Matthew 13, 11. <laughs> 11 through 13. <laughs> All right. Here's the snappy uh, banter, right? Yep. All right. Uh, 11 through 13, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. I think those, the ones that have, are the ones that are seeking God and will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who have not uh, are in unbelief. They won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. They don't want to understand. Their, their hearts are darkened. They don't seek God. You know, the New Testament says that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. And Paul also says in Corinthians that says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus goes on to quote from Isaiah later on in that chapter where he says, You indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but you do not perceive. They've closed their ears. They've closed their eyes. They don't want to understand. They've, they've turned from God. This is, remember, he's speaking of Israel. Israel has had a history of about 1,500 years of turning away from God and not listening to him and his ways. So they forget about the law. They ignore him. They go after and follow other gods and so on. So I think this idea is that... Uh, he speaks in parables because those who really want to understand will seek and understand, and those who don't will not. It will just be a, a riddle to them. But I want to make sure that everybody understands that I don't think it's God that causes this on these people. It's in their own uh, – it's, it's on them that they don't want. They don't seek God. They don't turn to God. They they are, they are in their own unbelief, and so they don't hear, and they don't understand. Um, so the other thing is that parables in story form, this is kind of the second reason I think Jesus speaks in parables, 
And a story is something that's easier to remember, right? We remember stories more easily. And so he tells these stories, and I think it's it helps us remember the principle by uh, remembering the story. And then finally, it was actually prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would speak in parables. Uh, Psalm 78 says that Jesus, uh, that he would speak in parables. I will utter hidden things since the foundation of the world, Psalm 78. So, um, and and he does. There's, uh, I think there's 35 or so different parables in Scripture. Or no, there's 40 different parables in Scripture. And, and do you know what? Of those 40 parables, about 33 of them deal with salvation. And when you think about what was Jesus's main teaching, what was his main point? Why did Jesus come into this world? And Scripture actually tells us why. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So should we be surprised that his the theme of most of the parables has to do with an individual's salvation being brought close to God? Um, so as we start walking through these parables, we're going to see that many, many of them deal with the simple idea that you must be saved to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Rosie's not surprised. None of us are surprised. Yeah. So I, I have a list, so we'll start going through this. Okay, let's do that. And and so about 33 of the 40 parables are related to salvation. First and foremost um, is the uh, one of the first parables in Scripture is this new cloth on a new uh, old coat and new wine in an old wineskin from Matthew chapter 9. And if you, could you read verse 16 and 17 from Matthew chapter 9? I would be happy to. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, mm-hmm. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, we in the 21st century may not understand the the physical consequences of doing what Jesus says, but everybody in the first century would have understood. If you pour new wine into an old wineskin, it's going to ferment, it's going to stretch, and the old wineskin is going to break. It's going to burst, and it doesn't work. Same with a new patch on an old cloth. You're going to wash it, it's going to shrink up, and it's going to tear away at the garment, so it doesn't work. So I think the simple truth is that the old doesn't mix with the new. Well, what is the old and what is the new? The old is the old way, the old way of the law. The new is the new covenant that Jesus is going to make with mankind that's in his blood. Makes it pretty clear. Yep. Pretty simple. Jeff, let's take our next break. You are uh, listening to our series on Who Is This Jesus? Jeff Verdorn is our teacher, and we are going to take a break and come back and continue Looking at the parables. Be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. We're back studying Who is This Jesus with Jeff Ferdorn, and we are talking parables today. You've come just at the right time because we're going to go to the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. And Jeff, with your permission, I'm going to read a bunch of these verses, I think through what, about seven? Yeah, let's read verse one through seven uh, from Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. All right. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Hmm. So here's the the first of three different parables uh, that deal with um, the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son or the prodigal son. Um, So these three parables are right in a row, and they all deal with something that's lost and needs to be found. Well, what's the principle? To me, the clearest, simplest principle in all three of these is what we were talking about right before the break that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And now he's talking or giving us stories of three different things that are lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And God is going to find them. They are going to be saved. And so in kind of this progression of parables, we saw that his first parable is this uh, idea of the old, uh, old, new wine and old wineskins. No, that doesn't work. There's an old way and there's a new way. I've come to announce this new way, this new way of salvation, because the way of the Moses, the Mosaic law is done. That's done. Second, we already talked about the parable of the hidden treasure that Jesus came to purchase men for God. He paid for the sins of all. That is what redemption is all about. And now we have these three parables of three things that are lost. So notice a couple of things in this parable. He personalizes this story to them as he's talking about the tax collectors and the sinners were gathered around him, but the Pharisees were muttering, right? And so he personalizes the story and says, suppose one of you. That's in contrast to some of the other parables where it says, the kingdom of heaven is like, or mm-hmm. something like that. So this is a very personal thing. I think of John three sixteen. you know, the whosoever line, very personal. But two, I think the main truth of these parables is that God wishes none to perish. The New Testament says this in 2 Peter 3, not wanting to any to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2 says that God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's uh, he's not willing, verse 14 goes on to say, and actually in, in Luke 15, that he's not winning, willing that any of these little ones should perish. God desires, this is God's heart. One of his biggest desires is that he wants all men 
to be saved. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he says in Ezekiel, and and that's his desire. So he says, Jesus himself said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And I, I just a little side note here. How does God draw men to himself? And I think this is a fascinating kind of you know, mini study to look at the different ways throughout Scripture that God gives us these clues on how he's drawing people to himself. So number one in Romans 1, he says, all creation declares God's glory so that man is without excuse. People, when they wake up and they open their eyes and see creation, should inherently know that where did all this come from? There has to be a creator I often point out that if you look at a bird's nest and you see this bird build a nest exactly like her great-great-great-grandmother did, but never went to school, never saw one built, never saw any plans for it, and yet every single bird of this species builds the nest exactly the same way. You know, science says that's instinct, you know, and they say, I have blind faith. Hmm. Are you kidding me? This is God. This Mm -hmm. declares God's glory. Even the most strident atheist could be standing, looking at some mountain scene and go, ah, that's beautiful. What they don't realize is that awe is actually pointing to God, the creator. He also says in Romans 2 that God has written the righteous requirements of the law on people's hearts. We know that there's right and wrong. Every single culture across the centuries, around the world, has some standard by which they judge right and wrong. And guess what? There's very there's a lot of similarities in this moral code, this moral law. And so this is the old adage, is murder wrong because it's illegal, or is it illegal because it's wrong? And if we know that we've made laws for those things that we all understand are wrong, where did that idea come from? Well, I believe God tells us. He says he's written his law on our hearts. We know it inherently. That's number two. Number three, Ecclesiastes says he puts eternity into man's heart. Every single person on the planet has some idea that there's something after this life. Now, they may not understand it properly. They may think that you can store up your treasures and put them in a pyramid and live in the afterlife, right? Uh, but they, but every person has an idea in some way, shape, or form because God has put it there. So he's drawing people to himself through this idea that there's eternity in man's heart. He says he sends his Holy Spirit out to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is working in this world to draw people to God. And, and, and finally, he says he stands at the door and knocks. And whosoever, if any person opens the door, Jesus says, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I think that's a perfect picture of salvation. God is knocking. We need to respond in faith by opening the door. And then God will save us and save us completely. Um, By the way, we as the church are supposed to be helping God, partnering with God, to bring this message to all the ends of the earth, right? We are Mm -hmm. supposed to go into the world preaching the gospel, letting people know that it's God who made all this, 
made them, loves them, died for them, rose again for them, and offers salvation through faith in him. All right, so that's the lost. And that, by the way, I think is the same thing when we turn from the lost sheep, we get to the lost coin. And once again, God is saying that um, that for, that there's great rejoicing um, uh, by the angels when one sinner repents. Well, that's clearly salvation. That rejoicing is the rejoicing of one person opening that door, believing in Lord Jesus Christ, and being saved. Um, and then, of course, the prodigal son. The prodigal son is too long uh, to read here, and uh, boy, this one is probably the one that gets the most uh, variant, different interpretations within the church. But I think it's it's simple. Once again, the son who goes away and is wallowing with the pigs. I love this line in verse uh, 21 of Luke 15. It says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. And he, it says that he comes to his senses and realizes this. Well, that's exactly what the world needs to do. The lost world needs to come to their senses and understand that they've sinned before God and turn to him in faith. And when they do that, that father is going to save them. And the rest of the story, he's going to clothe them in a white robe, give them sandals, give them an inheritance. And by the way, bring them into this banquet, which I believe is symbolic of the marriage supper of the lamb, which happens. That's the first thing that happens in the millennial kingdom when all of the believers will come together and feast. Uh, Isaiah says a great feast of the finest meats. No, the finest wines and the choicest meats. That sounds like a pretty cool feast. To me, <laughs> it does, so. yeah. Uh, but only if you're saved will you be able to attend that feast. Um, so there's, there's. by the way, I, sh- I should note, um, because there's so much um, talk of the older son in the story of the prodigal son, it's the older son and who does the older son represent? If he, is he already saved? Is he not saved? Um, I think the older son is not saved. I think the older son represents the legalistic Pharisee folks. That is what Jesus was responding to in these three paris, parables, by the way. He was responding to the Pharisees. Um, and I think the Pharisees would have seen themselves in the older son because it's it's the older son who said this in verse 28 it says the older brother became angry and refused to go in to the wedding banquet mm-hmm. so they didn't go in they weren't saved i think this was the legalistic pharisees that were mad and upset just like the real pharisees were mad and upset that jesus was talking to the tax collectors and the sinners so too this older son in this story was mad and upset that this this sinner the one who took the inheritance, wasted it all, wallowed with the pigs, was brought back, and, and the father held a great feast mm-hmm. for him. Time for some more snappy banter? Yeah. Yeah. I think of the uh, the son that left with the inheritance. I think he was alienated from the father by doing everything wrong, and I think the older son was alienated from the father, but he did everything right. Hmm. And I think that represents the Pharisees in a way. They followed the law, and they did everything right. They didn't have a relationship with the father, though. Yeah. I, I think of Paul's words when he says, as for legalist righteousness, faultless. Mm-hmm. He described yeah. himself as a Pharisee. Right. Oh, I, I was a keeper of the law. 
You know, that it, Jesus says they wear their phylacteries large and their tassels long or something. You know, when they pray, they use many words and they pray in the street, street corners and they held out their righteousness, their self righteousness yeah. for others to see. That's I why think there's right. no phylacteries or robes in this studio ever. It's <laughs> <laughs> even hard to say. <laughs> I know. Tell me it's hard to say. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we'll take a break. I think this is about the time. Of course, these uh, parables, we could spend a lot of time in these. These are a blast to talk about. We could. Uh, well, you know, we're not going to get through them. So no, maybe next time we'll yeah, continue on we'll with parables. T- let's not race through these. These yeah. are great. All right. We're going to take a break. You are listening to our Who Is This Jesus series with Jeff Verdorn, he's our teacher, and we'll take a break and be right back. During the break, Jeff and I were talking uh, about one other thing we want to add into the discussion. So we have a little addendum to add to uh, where we left off, Jeff. Yeah. So the parable, set it up and add it on the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. There was one aspect of it. If you recall, we were talking about that some use this parable to teach the idea that you can be saved, you can then lose your salvation, and then you can come back and be saved again. And I ju- I just don't think that's possible biblically with the rest of the New Testament, and that's that's a whole nif- another discussion. But they use this line in verse 24 of the, of the prodigal son that says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, as he was lost and now he's found. And so some play on this idea of him being alive again and saying, Oh, well, he must have been alive and then died and then was made alive again. And I, I really, that's, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think what it's saying is akin to what Jesus said in John chapter 3 when he told Nicodemus that a man must be born again. It's that second birth. It's that being made alive spiritually that is at play here, that is in these words. Again, it says he was lost and now he's found. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. So I think he was unsaved throughout the entire story until he comes to his senses and comes back to the Father, and that's when he was saved. He was made alive again, but alive spiritually. He was born again. I don't think this indicates that he was once saved, then lost, then saved again. All right. Well, let's move on. Jeff Ferdorn is our guest, and we're in the Who Is This Jesus series, and today we're talking about parables, if you just joined us. Let's move on to uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. How about that? Well, perfect, because this this is a long one, so I don't I don't think we need to read through this whole Maybe thing. Maybe you could paraphrase it for yeah, us? Yeah, let's, let's just kind of paraphrase it. So there's this farmer, and he's going out to get workers, and he goes at the third hour, I'm sorry, early in the morning, which is about 6 a.m., first light, and he hires some workers. Then later, and he says, I'll pay you a denarius for the day, and he sends them into his vineyard, and they all agreed to work for a denarius. And then at the third hour, which is about 9 a.m., three hours later, he gets some more people, and he says, I'll pay you whatever is right. And then it says, I'll go, he goes out in the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour, so that's 12 o'clock, and then three hours later, which would be 3 o'clock, 
And then it even says that in the 11th hour, he goes and gets some more. So that would be close to the end of the day at 5 o'clock. Well, now here comes the rub. Pay time comes at the end of the day. And those who were hired last received their pay first, and they received a denarius. So those that were hired at early in the morning at 6 a.m. thought, well, if they got a denarius, we are going to get something more. But then you know what happened? He got paid a denarius, according to the story. And they all grumbled against the landowner. They said, no, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Why have you paid them the same as you paid us? And he basically says, didn't you promise to work for the day for denarius? And they said, well, yes, we did. So what's the lesson? By the way, he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And that's where that kind of famous line comes from at the end of this parable. Most understand this parable as talking about salvation, and I agree. I think this is talking about salvation, and I think it's talking about salvation in a way that it's offered to all, number one, but if you are saved, if you get the denarius, if you will, you will receive your reward, your inheritance, and whether you believed very early in your life and worked for God your entire life, versus you accepted Christ on your deathbed, you are going to receive that denarius. You will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this inheritance that God talks about, this eternal life and this dwelling in the house of the Lord forever is available to anyone and everyone that says, I believe in you, whether you do it at the beginning of your life or whether you do it at the end of your life. If you remember, one of the great examples of this is the thief on the cross who on at the moment of his death turns to Christ and believes in him Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus says surely you'll be with me today in paradise he was saved and he will be in heaven just like Billy Graham who believed early and bore lots and lots of fruit for God now i will say that there's most likely going to be one difference between them, and that is this idea of rewards. So believers will will appear before what is called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus says that's, or Paul says, I'm sorry, Paul writes that that's where believers will be rewarded for what we've done in our body. Now, it doesn't describe what these rewards are. Some think of them as more crowns, Some think of them as more jewels in your crowns or bigger crowns. Scripture actually doesn't indicate that. Um, There's actually, this is is kind of a little side note. There's actually five different crowns described in Scripture. Let me just name them really quick here, find my list. It's the incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians 9, the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2, the crown of life in James 1, the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, and the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4. And many will teach that, well, you can, you can earn more and more crowns, and here's five that you could earn. But how many, I have to ask, how many people ever wear five crowns at one time? Yeah. I, I don't think you can. I've never I think even you, heard of it. No, you can't yeah. wear many crowns. So it's, the idea is, I think this is the same crown I think it's just described in different ways. The crown of righteousness, after all, who is righteous other than 
every single believer is righteous. So I think every believer will receive the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, and so on. Now, will some have more jewels in their crowns than another? I, I, yeah, I don't see that in Scripture. And by the way, if you turn to the back of the book, what do we do with our crowns? We cast them down. We do. When, when the 24 elders are seen in their crowns after the Bema seat, when they've received their reward, mm-hmm. they lay them at the feet of Jesus. Because in reality, and I think we will fully understand this the moment he sets that crown on our heads, that he is our reward. Yeah, amen. Right? And it's, it's still ours to treasure through all of life, but it came from him and it's rightly his. I agree. And we're delighted to give it uh, to him at his feet. And as my, my friend Greg Steer, who's a, a speaker out in Colorado, Dare to Share Ministries, he often says, notice that it says whenever they sing, they lay their crowns at his feet. So in other words, we do this many times. In other words, we go over and we pick it up again. So I think you're absolutely right. I think this crown will be a treasured possession of ours for all of eternity, but never forget that it came from the rewarder. I'm not so interested in the reward as I am with the rewarder, and that is Christ. And so we will dwell with him forever. I'm happy to get a crown. I have no idea how many jewels. Remember, the Bema seat, by the way, all the bad is burned up. What remains, we will receive our reward. So that's where we get the idea. 1 Corinthians uh, 3 or 5, what what remains, we receive our reward. So, But remember... This is the other thing about the Bema seat. Can you do anything righteous on your own that deserves reward? No. No, we can't. The Bible makes it clear that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. So the only righteous acts that we can do is the, the, the fruit, if you will, that we bear as we abide in the vine. So it's, it's Christ himself that's actually producing these righteous acts in us, this fruit in us, and that's what he's rewarding us for. So I think the picture is going to be, Lord, you just gave me this crown for these righteous acts. They all came from you, and in recognition of that, I'm going to lay this crown at your feet because that was the source of it all. So at the, the Bema seat, Jeff, there's not going to, you say everything gets burned away. All the bad, right? All the bad. So it's there's not going to be a video uh, replay of life where you're 12 years old sneaking into the movie theater and all that <laughs> stuff that you, I know you did, Jeff. That's as you bad just as haven't it admitted gets to for it you, yet. Bill. Is that as bad as it gets for you, sneaking <laughs> into the movie theater? Um, yeah, there's, I was teaching my end times class actually just a few years ago. And a woman came up to me after we did our teaching on the Bama seat. And she said, I've never heard this before. I've always had this picture and it's always been taught that when it's my turn, I'm going to go stand up in front of all of heaven, an entire movie of my entire life is going to be played. And I've dreaded that day my entire life because I don't want all of heaven seeing all my life. Who would? Right. And I, I know it's taught that way and I know it's portrayed that way often. But there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that. Remember, it's God who says that he casts his sin as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. Romans says that he no longer counts our sins against you. If he's no longer counting our sins against us, why would he play it all before all of heaven? Yeah, great point. And the answer is I don't think he will. 
I think the the picture is is that all the bad, all the stuff that was done in the flesh on our own power will be burnt up. And what remains is the fruit, the works, the deeds that we did by his power. And that's what we'll be rewarded for. Mm. Isn't that a much better picture? It's a great picture. Oh. It's a happier picture. It is a happier yeah. picture. And now, and she said, by the way, for the first time in my life, I'm looking forward to that day. Oh, so, that's great. And you don't have to sweat how bad you feel about sneaking into that movie theater when you were 12. <laughs> it's, it's it. I just for the record, <laughs> yeah. because this is taped and on yeah. radio, I didn't sneak into I know. The, yeah, I know. Okay. I that's part of the snappy banter. I yeah. make stuff up. I, I just stole some popcorn on the way in. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't think we have much time left to do another one. I think we're no. down to about a minute left, Jeff. So yeah, I well, think... we have a lot of parables <clears throat> left, so next time we could continue with a bunch of parables. Yeah, I think that's uh, that'd be great to continue. We are going to uh, conclude for now, but we will return uh, with our series, Who is This Jesus? And Jeff Verdorn is our teacher, and we had... A whole lot of fun going through some of the parables today. We'll continue with more next time we return. It's always a good time to show Christ's love to a hurting world through acts of kindness. So you can join our Kindness Always initiative at myfaithradio.com. You should check it out. And if you want to receive a daily email featuring a nice scripture graphic, you can sign up for the Verse of the Day email also at myfaithradio.com. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.